Good morning. Is this, is this thing working? A little bit. Uh, it's great to be here. I'll tell you your future. You go to college for three or four or five or six years, and uh, you spend the rest of your life just longing for those days. Um, I was in this room in chapel in 1972 uh, to 75. It was the same structure, and uh, it brings back great memories. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, one of the things that happens to you when you're in college is you, could you say amen to this if it's true, you're introduced to new ideas and philosophies and friends. Okay, and that's a good thing. You, your, your world gets bigger. That's what happened to me. I came from a certain church and culture, and I came to Westmont big, 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 and uh, chapel is a part of that. Some of those friends that you make are sitting next to you right now, and some of those friends that you make are dead. <laughs> They're writers and thinkers that have died maybe 100, 200, 300 years ago. And some of those friends will be chapel speakers. In my first year here, 1972, we had in this one year we had Francis Schaefer, I don't know if you know that name, Carl F.H. Henry. You know they're important if they've got two initials in the middle of their name. He's the guy that started Christianity Today. Uh, and there's another man who spoke in chapel that year in 1972. Is uh, I think a 28 or 29 year old punk named Ben Patterson, and he he taught out of Revelation 4, and it was a good job. I still remember some of what you said, Ben. And he had this cute little quote by C.S. Lewis about kids making mud pies in the slums or something. Like that. <laughs> I thought it was a great chapel talk, but then again, I'm far too easily pleased. But. <laughs> I, I know a little bit where you are, not completely, it's been a lot of years for me, but um, I would suggest there are, at one level, we could break down this room in a lot of different ways, but one way to break down the room would be, we could say there are those in this room who have not yet bowed their knee to Christ, and you're here for some reason or other at this school, and you, you have to endure this, and, and maybe you're exploring the Christian faith a little bit, and maybe you're not, maybe you're adamant not to meet God. Uh, there's another group here who do know Jesus but you are right now, maybe even today, making decisions in your own life of holiness and your own intellectual life that you will regret for really for eternity and for the duration of your life here. And then there's a third group, and I, I wish this were every one of us, that are earnestly seeking to know God and to follow Christ and to grow in Christ well, I'm one guy who wants to introduce you to a, a friend, a friend that I didn't hear much about in college when I went here. His name is Jonathan Edwards. He was born in October 1703. And we might summarize the thinking of Jonathan Edwards in two ways. He, on the one hand, he, he saw everything from the perspective of God. Mark Knoll, the historian at Wheaton College, said Edwards had a God-entranced worldview. And he built his worldview from the ground up, from the foundation of God. Everything was seen from the perspective of God and everything was seen to God's glory. But the second component of Edward's thought, he was a pastor, he was the, the negotiator, we might call him, of the Great Awakening. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But the second feature of Edward's thinking was that you and I and everybody, we would find our ultimate Fulfillment, joy, happiness, fill in the blank with whatever word you choose. Our ultimate fun, if you want to go that direction, in God. 
that the other pleasures of life are only leading us toward God. He spoke in a fancy way. Listen to the way, the way he put it. This is in uh, his book, The End for Which God Created the Universe. Great little short book. It'll take you hours to read it. It's about 100 pages long, but it's, it's thick. And it's, here's one of the sentences. He says, The happiness of the creature, that's you, me, consists in rejoicing in God. And then the second half of the sentence, by which God is magnified and glorified. Now let me break that down for us. You want to be happy, and I want to be happy, and every one of those groups I just mentioned wants to be happy, whether you're not a believer or you're a believer who's making poor decisions right now or whether you're a believer who's following Christ. One thing is true of every one of us. We want to be happy. We're created for that. There's a yearning in us. Well, Edwards comes along and says, all right, let's listen to that yearning and let's realize biblically and the structure of the universe teaches us also that the happiness of the creature, you and me and the non-believer, your neighbor that doesn't know Christ back home, every one of us will find our ultimate joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, happiness in God. And then the second half of the sentence, he says, by which... God is magnified and glorified. In other words, God's quest for glory is not in competition with your quest for happiness. Now, you sang really well. Can you say amen to that? And those two things come together in the scriptures and in the thinking of Jonathan Edwards. We just sang a song. All thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and see. And the thinking of Jonathan Edwards, and I would say, who cares about that? The thinking of the scriptures teach this. Watch this sentence. I think Jonathan would like it if he were here. The scriptures teach that there's a God who is there who is so great that he is worthy of the praise of everyone and everything for eternity. And furthermore, that it is in God that everyone finds his or her ultimate fulfillment. Now, if you're listening, you might be saying, Reed, where do you get that? Well, I got it from Jonathan Edwards, and Jonathan Edwards got it from the Scriptures. Hang on to your hats. Turn to Isaiah if you have your Bibles. If you don't, just hang on. We're going to go very quickly here. While you're turning to Isaiah, let me talk through one of the New Testament texts. Paul tells us this is the very purpose of creation, is to glorify God. For by him, by Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created, watch the prepositions here, by him and for him. The purpose of this beautiful day in Montecito is to glorify God. God created a people for himself, for his own glory. Isaiah 43, I didn't tell you the chapter, sorry. 43, verse 6. And stay in Isaiah no matter what I say. God says, I will say to the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. This is a remnant of faithful in Israel after judgment. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God creates a people for himself, for his glory. 
This is the purpose, did you know this, of salvation. I mean, you've probably never heard this if you've been in kind of mainline evangelical circles, but it's the teaching of the scripture that God saved you for his own glory. Isaiah 43, verse 25. Just look down your page. I, even I, am he. I'm the God who blots out your transgressions. Why? Why would God do that? For my sake, God says, and remembers your sins no more. Did you know that Jesus died to glorify himself and the Father? Don't turn there, but think with me to John 17. When you read John's Gospel, you have this tension in the Gospel. You can maybe get a little essay question right in your New Testament survey if you listen up here. Uh, there's a tension of, of the hour of Jesus. He keeps telling people, it's not yet my time or my hour in the New American Standard translation. And the reader says, well, when does his hour come and what is his hour? Finally, in John 17, Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. And you say, oh, at last I get to find out what, where this gospel is going. What does he say? Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And in the context of that prayer, Jesus is talking about the cross. The cross is the moment of the glory of God. God saves a people for his own glory. God delays his own judgment for his own glory. Are you still in Isaiah? Turn to chapter 48. God has two kingdoms, really, the north and the south, that are rebellious. They just don't get it. And God holds back his wrath, and we say, why not? Why, God? Why wouldn't you just punish your people? I mean, they deserve it. They've lapsed over and over again into idolatry. Well, God delays his wrath for his own sake. Look at verse 9 of Isaiah 48. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. One more. Isaiah 60. You want to know what heaven is like? Read the latter chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah 60. We learn that the purpose of heaven is the glory of God. Look at verse 19. The sun will be no more... Uh, will, will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. Well, why don't we need the sun or the moon? Because of God's glory. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands. Why? For the display of my splendor. For my glory. So we're going to go, first verse of the, or second verse of the song we just sang, Holy, Holy, Holy. We're going to go and cast our crowns down around God. Again, the imagery comes from Revelation 4 and 5. And say forever, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. So chapel, church, fellowship groups is a rehearsal for eternity. Now, here's the secret of Edwards. 
and I hope it's your secret as well. It's the secret of the believer. When we pursue the glory of this God, He gets glorified and we get satisfied. Don't turn there, but think with me to Isaiah 55. The speaker is God. And God says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, God says, listen to me. Eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. And in context, that what is good, that, that, that entity that we are to dine upon is God himself. So we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and ambition and sex when infinite joy is offered to us. It's about God. That's the secret of the believer. Jonathan Edwards was born in October 1703. He lived 56 years. He was a remarkable thinker. He was a smart guy. He would have done well on the SAT test. Uh, at six, he had mastered Greek and Latin. By age 12, he went off to Yale, graduated at age 16, came back at age 17, and delivered the valedictorian address. See, I can't even say valedictorian, but uh, he delivered that address in Latin to the student body at age 17. He studied the leading philosophers of his day and he was riveted by their thought. He read an essay by John Locke called On Human Understanding and he said that he got more pleasure out of it than the most greedy miser finds when gathering up handfuls of silver and gold from some newly discovered treasure. I mean, go say to Dr. Winberg, that happened to you and he'll be pleased. <laughs> what kept this young, vibrant mind on track were the scriptures. He was saturated in the scriptures. As a pastor, he pastored one church for 23 years, and he meditated on the scriptures. He was known to study 12, 13 hours a day in the scriptures. And the, the fruit of that labor uh, has a, a redounding effect to this day that's affected my life, and I hope it'll affect yours as well. He was passionate about God's word. He said to his congregation in one of his sermons, be assiduous in reading the holy scriptures. And I would say that to you as students. Meditate on the scriptures. This is the fountain where all knowledge in God must be derived. Therefore, let not this treasure lie by you neglected. Well, after Yale, he went to a church in New York and pastored there for about eight months. He was 18 years old. Scottish Presbyterian Church. It went well. But he felt the call of God to go back and learn some more uh, theology back at Yale. And on the way back, you're going to love this part of the story, uh, he was passing through New Haven, and in New Haven he saw uh, a young woman, and he fell in love. And uh, it's possible, even for theologians, to do that. Uh, he met Sarah Pierpont, and he, he observed her. And listen to this. He, I think Edwards must have been kind of a nerd, um, because he wrote this in the front page of his Greek grammar, little love letter. Listen to this. They say there is a young lady in New, ha New Haven who is loved of that great being, God who made and rules the world. I mean, he's got it bad here, folks. Listen up. And that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight 
and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on Him. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after this great being has manifested himself to her. She will sometimes go about from place to place, singing sweetly, and seems always to be full of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone, walking in the fields and groves, and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. She was 13 years old when he wrote that. Four years later, when she was 17, they married and they lived their lives together, producing 11 children of their own, three sons and eight daughters. Is that too many? (laughs) Sarah Edwards was a a wonderful partner for a very strange man. One of the biographies uh, about their marriage calls it marriage to a difficult man. He was a strange guy, no question about it. But she partnered with him, and what a ministry they had together. Parenthetically, if I could encourage you, you are either there or you are fast approaching the season when you'll be looking for a mate. How embarrassing. (laughs) Pray. Begin to pray. Pray that God would give you a mate that would lead you into a deeper relationship with God. Pray for that. I'm praying for that for my children, that God would give them a... Uh, a spouse that would push them into the arms of God for the seasons of life. Pray for that in your own lives. Well, this was the time of the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening was controversial. Have you ever heard of anything in worship styles being controversial? (laughs) Well, it was controversial back then. God was doing a unique work in New England and on the other side of the pond over in, in England. And Edwards was one of the chief spokesmen, spokespersons for the, for the Great Awakening, and he navigated these troubled waters. But throughout it all, Edwards had a, had a sense of lifting these very exuberant experiences that people were having, lifting them into the very presence of God, realizing that God was glorified in these experiences that people were having. I want to give you, if you could just give me your minds for a few seconds, this is going to be the hardest part of what we're going to talk about this morning. Think with me for a second, then I'll let you go, okay? But Edwards put it like this, as he's navigating both the head and the heart. Cold New England, post-Puritan thinking, and this great awakening of God that had its excesses and probably would make many of us feel very uncomfortable. Here's what Edwards said, and, and chew on this with me. He said, God is glorified not only in his glories being seen... You can look at God's glory, and Edward says that's not enough, but by its being rejoiced in. Now, here's the next hard part. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. What Edwards is saying, if we were to put it in the context of Westmont College, is you can go to a theology class and write a paper on God's glory, kabod in Hebrew, doxa in Greek. And Edwards would say, well, big deal. If you just write a paper and give it to your professor, he says, that's good, but it's not good enough. God is more glorified when we exult in his glory. God made the world, he says, that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory and that it might be received by both the mind and the heart. 
So how appropriate for this setting. Use your mind to apprehend the glory of God in the sciences and in theology and philosophy and literature. These are the good things that God has given us. But don't stop short there. Bring that together with a heartfelt response to who God is and what he's done. I love what went on here today. Exuberance in worship. Amen to that. This summer I took what might turn out to be the definitive vacation of my life. I took my family. I have three kids and my wife. and We went up to Glacier National Park and then on up into the Canadian Rockies. And we hiked about 160 miles. Uh, my, one of my sons kept track uh, to hold it against me, I guess. Uh, we backpacked. We saw the, the wildlife and so on. But one of the things we did on that trip is we went on a kayak trip in Moline Lake, way up in Jasper, Canada. Now, this is so far north that you can play golf at 11 o'clock at night in June there. It's just way up there. And we went down this lake. It was a 28-mile trip in kayaks. And uh, one, of my, one of my brothers-in-law came with his family, and there were five kayaks with ten people. And this lake was simply gorgeous. I mean, it was just gorgeous. Glaciers billowed down out of the mountain right into the water that was glaciated turquoise. Birds flying, deer and, and moose on the shore. One morning we were paddling at about 7.30 in the morning and we saw uh, a mother nursing her calf. Just gorgeous. Well, it struck me. One day my, my brother-in-law came up to me in his kayak, and, which we would do from time to time, and he, he said something that I thought afterwards... I thought, that was really stupid. And he's in Buffalo, so he'll never hear this, so I can say that. But uh, he said, Reed, this is beautiful. And you think about it. That's just so, such an understatement. To which I responded, Phil, this is beautiful. And then he said, it's beautiful. And for four days on this lake, over and over again, we, we used our puny vocabularies to give to the environment what it had already given to us. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, that expression of adulation to the environment, to this to this lake, to these mountains, to these glaciers, to the, the, the flora and fauna, that expression honored what was already there. It didn't change it, but it gave it more glory in the sense that we were there singing with it. That's what Edwards is saying here about God, that God is glorified not when we just see his glory, but that when we exult in it. Something else happens, though when we express our praise, we are delighted. I mean, try going to a hockey game, Stanley Cup, final, seventh game, and try sitting there when your favorite team is just about to win and, and pretend like you've got a rule that you cannot clap, you cannot speak, you cannot shout, you just have to sit there in silence. 18,000 of you in silence. When you go home, how much fun have you had? Does not the expression of praise for your team or your sorrow over their loss, 
Does that not complete the joy of the event? Edwards invites us to exult in God. He was a man who had a passion for God. He was in love with God. He was in pursuit of God. He enjoyed fellowship with God. He loved to think about God. He loved to pray to God, to teach about God. He preached 12,000 sermons in his lifetime, but he understands fundamentally that his primary satisfaction in life was in God. And that changed everything for him. It gave Jonathan Edwards an uncommon confidence in life's trials. He had a tough life. After 23 years in his church, he was fired ingloriously. Fired. Just sent on his way. At the time, he had nine children living at home. He wrote a letter four days after his last sermon. Here's what he said. 46 years old. He said, I am now, as it were, thrown upon the wide ocean of the world and know not what will become of me and my numerous and chargeable family. These people want to eat. His youngest child was 10 months old. He says, I am fitted for no other business but study. And you can imagine that. I should make a poor hand at getting a living by any secular employment. Think about this as you face the trials of your life. He says, we are in the hands of God and I bless him. I am not anxious concerning his disposal of us. I am God's, and God can do with me whatever he wants. In his last year of life, he took the presidency of a small college you might have heard of, Princeton University. And the new thing in town was to have a smallpox vaccination, and he took it. He was a scientist. He took the vaccination, and it was too strong, and it killed him. He wrote his daughter a letter. He knew he was dying. His throat was contracted and he couldn't breathe. And he knew that it was his end. And notice this confidence in God, even in the midst of life's most trying time. Dear Lucy, his daughter, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife. She was 100 miles away, which was a long journey. And tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature that I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And here's his last words to his children. As to my children, you are now to be left fatherless. Hear this next line. And hear this if you've had a tough family. Many of us, most of us have had tough family journeys. Here's a father who is dying within a day. And his last line to his children, As to you, my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. Here's this God-entranced worldview that when he loses his job, he says, I'm not concerned about what God wants to do with me. When he's going to die, he says, it seems to be the will of God that I leave you. But let that departure push you into God, into his arms. He'll never fail you. He will never leave you. Jonathan Edwards had a vision of God that propelled him to heaven. He yearned for eternity. 
That's what he wanted in life. If we understand life rightly, we will understand that the pleasures of this world, whether they're good ones or bad ones, I'll just say whether the good ones, the good ones are good. They're gifts from God. Marriage, food, surfing, snowboarding, whatever your pleasure is, good music. Those pleasures are good, but they should, rightly understood, creating us a sense of wanting more and realizing that the more is in Christ. Edwards knew that. He had this God-entranced worldview that, that drew him to yearn for heaven. Here's what he said. Think about this. He said, The enjoyment of God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than Armington. Better than Clark. Better than that house in Aspen, Colorado. The enjoyment of God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. And then he spelled it out. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends. These are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the ocean. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you've not yet bowed your knee to him, I want to invite you to consider God, to consider the claims of Christ and to take your sins such as they are and place them at the foot of the cross and enjoy the forgiveness that he offers. And for the rest of us who do know Jesus, let your vision of God Play itself out in every area of your life. The happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God by which God is magnified and exalted. Amen? Let's stand together. Lord, may this be so in our lives. May we be people who will be content with nothing less than you. Direct our lives to your being, to your glory, to be satisfied in Christ. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his great power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.